Hello everyone and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is episode 60, The Byzantine Golden Age, Basil II, part 2. There is another front on the Byzantine borders that gave Basil II grief in his early reign. We mentioned both the Fatimids and the Holy Roman Empire in previous episodes, and in Italy, all three superpowers came into contact. The Fatimids controlled Sicily, the Byzantines had southern Italy, and the Holy Roman Empire controlled central and northern Italy. Basil II inherited several alliances, but the funny thing with the medieval world, these alliances didn't always transcend from one leader to the next. Emperor John Tzimisky's niece married the Holy Roman Emperor, but when the crown was passed to Basil II, it seemed as though this alliance faded away. The Holy Roman Empire claimed to fight against the Arabs and march their armies south to war with the Fatimid Caliphate, but the only trouble was the Byzantines controlled all the land between them, and so the Germans found themselves mostly battling with the Greeks. It's pretty obvious that the Holy Roman Empire was expanding into Greek-controlled lands, and they were using the excuse of fighting the infidels to do so. Now, this is something we will see again and again in the coming centuries. But lucky for Basil, he did not need to send an army to the west to stop the Holy Roman Empire and Fatimid Caliphate from gobbling up his land in Italy. On December 7th, 983 CE, Otto II died suddenly. He was succeeded by his son Otto III, and all campaigns in Italy came to an end. And just like that, Basil II secured his lands in the west by hanging on long enough for his rivals to die. In the early 980s, everything seemed to be peaceful in the Byzantine Empire. The civil war was over, Italy was at peace, and the Bulgarians had a puppet Tsar. But this was a false sense of security, and Basil knew it. For starters, the traitor Bardas Scaleros was not dead. He was simply imprisoned within the Abbasid Caliphate. If the Arabs wanted to destabilize the Byzantine Empire, all they had to do was let Scaleros go free. Tension was high on the borders of all five superpowers, these being the Byzantines, the Fatimids, the Abbasids, the Bulgarians, and the Holy Roman Empire. There was no war at this point, and it seemed that neither side wanted to go to war. In fact, everyone was actively seeking to avoid an all-out war. This is proven by the many accounts of diplomats traveling back and forth negotiating amongst each other. Fun fact, for the last 400 years, the Byzantine Empire had experienced colder winters and shorter summers. This is verified through historical records as well as the Greenland temperature chart. But everything was changing. Summers were getting warmer. Crops were yielding more food. 
This marks the beginning of the medieval warm period. Life was starting to improve for the citizens of the empires, and the leaders were not willing to throw everything away by entering into an all-out war with their neighbors. Cool heads were prevailing. One of the negotiators from Baghdad traveled across Anatolia to Constantinople. He was given an audience with Basil II and Basil Lecapeno. At this point, Basil II was not ruling the empire 100% by himself. He still retained the counsel of his advisor and great-uncle Basil Lecapenos. These negotiations weren't a waste of time, but they did seem to go very slow. It's hard to appeal to someone's interests when you have two people to contend with. But the negotiations took a slight turn when Basil Lecapenos fell ill and had to leave the meeting to the emperor. This is where Basil was able to take 100% control of the situation. It even helped with the episode negotiator, as he only needed to appeal to one man's interests instead of two. With the wise Basil Lecapenos out of the room, the caliphate came to terms with the young ambitious emperor, and an agreement for peace was reached. Bardas Galero and his loyal followers would be released from prison in Baghdad and transferred over to Greek authorities in exchange for the city of Aleppo, all of its prisoners and tribute. This deal was so terrible that Basil Lecapenos nearly crapped his pants when he heard what his emperor agreed to do. Why would he give everything up in exchange for someone who was in jail? It didn't make sense and Basil Lecapenos made sure to tell the emperor it was a terrible agreement. Seeing just how bad of a job his nephew did while he was in bed rest, Basil Lecapenos took back control of his old office and made sure to keep a tight leash on his nephew. However, Basil the emperor had his first taste of power, and he liked it, and he wasn't too pleased with his uncle telling him what he could and couldn't do. Meanwhile, the Fatimid Caliphate was starting to grow restless. They had been consolidating power in the Middle East and were ready to make their next move. The Fatimids launched a surprise attack against the city of Damascus, and from there they launched attacks against the independent state of Aleppo. This was a direct threat against the Byzantines, and Basil II needed to act right away. General Bardas Phocas was dispatched to the city of Aleppo and arrived on the second day of the siege. The Fatimids probably weren't expecting the Romans to arrive so quickly, and seeing a large army on the horizon, the Fatimids knew they'd never take the city of Aleppo, and a general retreat was ordered. In 985 CE, Basil II figured he had a good enough grasp of the empire. He was already 27 years old and had a lot of experience at the helm. He looked at his great-uncle, who was running most of the administrations, and felt that the eunuch Basil de Kapinos was growing too powerful and might be plotting against him. Basil de Kapinos was the son of another emperor and had acquired an insane amount of land and wealth. Could he still be trusted, running the empire for young Basil II? Apparently not. 
not according to Basil II. The orders were given, and Basil Le Capinos was removed from office, and Basil II took over as the ultimate ruler of the Roman Empire. His great-uncle was humiliated and sent packing. This could have ended right here and now, but Basil II either grew paranoid or caught wind of a plot. And not long after removing Basil Le Capinos from office, he was placed under arrest for plotting against the emperor. All of Basil Le Capinos' lands were seized, his gold taken, and he was placed in a prison. The eunuch, who had long served under four emperors and dedicated his life to making sure everything ran smoothly in the empire. The man who counseled Emperor Basil II against his powerful generals in the east was stripped of all his land, titles, money, clothing, and sent into a dark prison. In less than a year, poor Basil Le Capinos, heartbroken, alone, and humiliated, died in a cold dungeon cell. Basil was the ultimate power in the empire, but he still had a brother, Constantine. It's easy to look at Basil as a power-hungry autocrat who was eliminating anyone around him who could pose a threat. But his relationship with his younger brother Constantine was warm. While Basil took absolute power over the empire, his younger brother Constantine ruled over the court. He dealt with the bureaucrats, as well as enjoyed the frivolous perks of living in the court of the richest city in the world. He ate and drank, but he was a valiant warrior who defended the honor of his older brother at every opportunity. This relationship never faltered or wavered for the entire reign of Basil II. In fact, if you look at a coin of Basil II, you will see him standing shoulder to shoulder with his younger brother. Almost on cue, the emir of Aleppo stopped paying tribute to the Roman Empire, which forced the hand of the general Bardas Phocas. Up until now, the Byzantine system of dealing with threats on the frontier was to let the generals do their thing. There was a form of autonomy within the army, and this is what got the Byzantine Empire through the Arab conquests. So the fact that Bardas Phocas took the initiative and laid siege to the neighbors of Aleppo was no big deal. In fact, it was by the book. But Basil II was new to power, and he did not like the idea of letting his subordinates make decisions without his authority. So Basil II stepped in and sent orders to his general to lay off the siege. This move was not only unprecedented, but it was also a slap in the face to General Bardas Phocas. How dare this young man from the capital, who has zero military experience, tell his most prestigious and experienced general how to run his army. This insult was the very beginning of the Second Civil War. While this trouble with Aleppo was going on in the Byzantine Empire, the Fatimid Caliphate took advantage of the chaos and seized a coastal town from the empire. 
The growing threat of the Fatimid Caliphate led Basil II to appoint a new general to take on the Arabs. This was another insult to Bardas Phocas, who was the rightful general in the area and should have been the one to fight the Arabs. This new general was given very specific instructions on what Basil II wanted him to do. The instructions from Basil read as follows. Dear General Melisenus, if you do not take the city from the Fatimids, you will be forced to pay for the entire military expedition out of your own pocket. This is, of course, paraphrasing, but the message was loud and clear. Don't mess this up. The threat must have worked because General Melisenus retook the lost city. Basil II didn't stop there. He was determined to take complete control over his empire. When he looked at the map of the empire and the governors who controlled the provinces and the power they held, he came to only one conclusion. Basil II did not control everything as long as his generals controlled something. It's so easy to look at this young emperor as paranoid and power-hungry, and he most certainly was, but it was also important to remember how his family had been overthrown three separate times from generals in the east. He was looking at a problem and trying to solve it. One of his controversial moves was to shuffle around the generals in Anatolia. He immediately recalled several generals who were loyal to Lecapanos and then demoted the great general Bardas Phocas. The fact that he was making all these changes from the safety of his palace must have angered these men. I can only imagine the look on Bardas Phocas' face when he opened the letter from the emperor, telling him that his reward for winning the civil war and defending the empire from the caliphate was a demotion to the city of Antioch. Did he crumple up the letter and throw it in the fire? Did he scream and yell at the messenger? Or did he defiantly laugh at the outrageous demands from the emperor? In 986 CE, Basil II was forced to deal with the ever-encroaching Bulgarian threat from the west. Samuel the Bulgarian was growing bolder and bolder and started to raid into the Byzantine-held lands of Thessaly and eastern Bulgaria. Basil looked at this as an opportunity. He could have easily picked the best general suited for the job, but he thought this would be an even better opportunity to lead his men in battle and personally prove to his army that he was not an armchair general. He was an emperor, someone to be feared and respected. So Basil II mustered up an army and marched out of the gates of Constantinople. His plan was simple. Attack the Bulgars, win some glory, and return to the capital a hero. That will show his generals in the east who held the true power in the Roman Empire. On July 25th, 986, Basil and his army made it to the gates of Sredets. It was a hot summer. His men were well fed and armed. This siege should be a breeze. If you want a little hint as to what happened, just know that Sredets is now known as Sofia and is the capital of Bulgaria. 
Who knows how long this fight went on before reality struck Basil II. But very quickly, Basil realized just how impossible this task was. On August 16th, 986, Basil II called off the siege. It was only 20 days, and Basil knew the cause was lost. Maybe they didn't have enough food. Maybe they didn't have the proper siege equipment. Either way, the whole plan was a mess, and they needed to get the hell out of there before something terrible befell the Greek soldiers. The Byzantine army marched south making their way through the narrow paths of the mountain. This was the most dangerous part of the army's journey. The path was too narrow to form up, and the terrain was foreign to them. There was also the chance that Basil simply didn't expect an ambush. But the ambush did come. The Greek soldiers were taken completely by surprise. Arrows flew out of the trees and bushes, and raiders charged the Romans from side and rear. Chaos erupted throughout the ranks, and soon the Romans broke off into mass panic and stampede. Still, the Bulgar arrows fell from the sky, piercing Romans in the back as they tried to run away. Supply carts were abandoned, and anyone unlucky enough to fall was trampled to death by the retreating Romans. While Basil looked around at the erupting chaos, a group of Bulgars descended upon him. The Roman soldiers had completely fallen into chaos, but the personal guard sworn to protect the emperor formed up around Basil and fought their way out of the ambush. He was fortunate enough to make it out of the mountains and escape back through Thrace and through the gates of Constantinople. Without the aid of his personal guards, Basil II would have died on August 16, 986, but he managed to barely escape with his life. His entire army was lost to the Bulgars. His royal tent and treasury were gone, and so was his credibility as a warrior emperor. We almost got another skull cup made from the head of a Roman emperor. Samuel the Bulgar king used the momentum to continue his conquest. Samuel made his move against eastern Bulgaria and overthrew the false Tsar, propped up by the Roman Empire. The people of Bulgaria looked at Samuel as a warrior king worthy of their servitude. When Basil made it back to the capital, I'm sure there was a short period of time where he was considering his retaliatory strike back to Samuel. He may have even begun planning the operation himself, but the word of his defeat made it beyond the palace walls. The word spread deep into Anatolia, to the generals who were dismissed by Basil II. It turns out that all those powerful military leaders that were insulted by Basil's reshuffling of forces saw this as a moment of weakness that should be exploited. To make matters even worse, the news of Basil's defeat against the Bulgarians spread beyond the borders of the empire. Word had traveled as far away as Baghdad, where none other than Bardas Glarus remained in prison. The Abbasids knew this was the time to release their prisoner and sent the traitor and his allies back to the empire where they could rekindle the rebellion. 
Basil II was in his palace, probably planning his attack against Samuel the Bulgar, when the worst possible news reached his court. Bardas Glarus, the traitor, had been released from prison and was now roaming the eastern provinces. Basil was furious. He sent orders to his generals, specifically General Bardas Focus. Basil defeated Sclerus before, and the secret then was to use his top general Bardas Focus. It only made sense to use the same weapon this time. Hopefully, he wasn't too upset about the public insult and demotion. It turns out Bardas Focus was still angry with Basil II, and in response to his letter, Bardas declared himself as the rightful emperor of the Romans. To make matters worse for Basil, Sclerus met up with Bardas Focus, and the two men joined forces. And then shortly after, the other generals who were upset with Basil's reformations joined the ranks with Bardas Focus. And just like that, the Second Civil War had begun. The agreement made between Sclerus and Focus was that one would be the senior emperor and the other would be the junior emperor. So Sclerus traveled to Bardas Focus' camp to officially join forces with him. The funny thing is, Bardas Focus had Sclerus immediately imprisoned when he arrived in his camp. When the Civil War began, almost the entire Eastern Army joined Focus. No one trusted Basil II as emperor. He was meddling in the affairs of the generals, and in the West, he was marching soldiers to their death. To make matters even worse for Basil, he had very few men at his disposal. All the best soldiers were in Anatolia, and everyone in the West was dead. There was only one possible place he could go for more soldiers, somewhere far to the north, beyond the lands of Bulgaria. He went, of course, to the Kievan Rus. It had only been a few years since John Simiskis defeated Sviatoslav, and they kind of left on good terms. Besides, desperate times call for desperate measures. The last we heard from the Kievan Rus. Their leader Sviatoslav was captured and executed by Pecheneg warriors after returning home. His head was famously turned into a drinking cup, leaving the kingdom of the Kievan Rus to his three sons, Yaropolk, Oleg, and Vladimir. The kingdom was thrown into chaos without Sviatoslav there to maintain order. The sons were all too young to rule on their own, and were looked after by regents and generals, and very quickly the kingdom erupted into bloody civil war. The brothers did seem to care about each other, but were manipulated to wage war against their neighbors at the behest of the general regents. In all the chaos, Yaropolk took control over the southern half of Kievan Rus, which prompted the young Vladimir in the north to flee Novgorod and seek refuge with his relatives in Norway. This absence allowed Yaropolk to easily move in and take control of Novgorod and the entire northern half of the kingdom. The Kievan Rus were now ruled by Yaropolk, son of Sviatoslav. Now, back in Norway, young Vladimir rallied thousands of followers until he had a whole army of Viking warriors by his side. 
they sailed across the Baltics and down the Ladoga River, waging war against Yaropolk's men until they made it to Novgorod, where they took control of the old capital. After killing Yaropolk's soldiers, a message was sent down the river to the city of Kiev. It was a message for his older brother. The message was very short and meant for Yaropolk's eyes only. The message read as follows. Vladimir is marching against you. Prepare for war. One thing that should be noted here is that Vladimir was a bastard. His father may have been Prince Sviatoslav, but his mother was no more than a slave, a Slavic slave. This probably haunted young Vladimir his entire life, as his older brothers were considered legitimate children, while he was always considered to be a bastard of a slave. Before he marched south to go to war with his older brother, Vladimir stopped off at another Viking kingdom in modern-day Latvia, or Lithuania. Vladimir entered the settlement with his army and met with King Ragnvald. Upon feasting with the Viking king, Vladimir spoke about taking the entire kingdom of the Kievan Rus from his brother, but wished to marry a Viking princess before embarking on his conquest. Sitting next to the king was the very beautiful Viking princess, and when she heard the request of Vladimir the Great, she scoffed and laughed in disgust before stating she would never marry a filthy bastard whose mother was a slave. As you might have guessed, that did not sit well for Vladimir. Not only was it extremely rude and insulting to dismiss him like that, but it was very deep and personal an attack that hurt him emotionally. Vladimir walked out of the Viking settlement with his blood boiling with rage. His army then laid siege to the Viking settlement. They burned all of the houses, killed all of the warriors, captured the king, and beheaded him. Vladimir then seized the princess and took her away as a slave. With his army bloodthirsty, he continued his march south to Kiev. The fighting started immediately, and the men besieged the city of Kiev, while the older son Yaropolk fled to another city to hide. Vladimir hunted him down and met him at the gates of the city. Yaropolk knew the jig was up. There was no way to win and nowhere to run. So he walked out of the front gates with the intention of making peace with his younger brother. But before he could even make it past the Norse warriors standing out front of the gate, he was cut down with a battle axe. Vladimir was now the uncontested leader of the Kievan Rus. This was a momentous occasion for Vladimir, so he commemorated the event by erecting statues of the pagan gods along the hills behind Kiev. There were gods from the Norse, the Slavs, the Finns, and even Iranic steppe gods. Vladimir spent his early years fighting wars on all sides of his kingdom, from the Poles in the west to the Volga-Bulgars in the northeast. 
as Vladimir flexed his muscles and traveled around the kingdom, fighting and killing, he grew to know one thing very well. All of his neighbors were large, rich empires, and all of them monotheistic religions. His grandmother Olga had converted to Christianity, and he always thought it was a moment of weakness. But he was starting to realize the benefit of having a single unifying religion. It was very beneficial for trade with other superpowers. It seemed as though it was time to convert to one of the big four. There was Latin Christianity, Khazar Judaism, Greek Orthodoxy, and Abbasid Islam. Vladimir sent advisors out to all corners of Eurasia to learn everything there was about these religions and to find out which one would best suit the Kievan Rus. Judaism was the first to be rejected. Why would anyone want to convert to a religion where the followers were kicked out of their homeland? The second religion to be rejected was Islam. There was no way they were going to convert to a religion that hated alcohol. Those who returned from Francia brought news of the depressing-looking cities and the lack of beauty. When the advisors came back from Constantinople, they expressed all the beautiful sights they saw, the Hagia Sophia, the gold statues, and the wonderful ritual of a Greek Orthodox service. They could not tell if they were in heaven or in earth. The decision was made. Vladimir was to convert to Christianity, the Greek version. But he wasn't going to convert the way someone would today. Vladimir was a conqueror, a king, a Viking warrior. He sailed down the Dnieper River and sieged the Greek city on the Crimea. Chersonesus. God, I hope I pronounced that well. Chersonesus. With the Byzantine city now under his influence, he sent an envoy to Constantinople to discuss his terms of conversion. It is here that the story of Basil II and Vladimir the Great come into contact. Vladimir already wanted to convert to Christianity, but it was best to leave that detail secret when entering negotiations. What he really wanted was to be legitimate. He wanted to take Kievan Rus from the backwaters of northern Europe to the center stage. He asked for Basil II's sister hand in marriage. Basil II, of course, agreed to this right away, but was shocked when his sister objected. To us, there are many reasons why a woman should not want to refuse a strange man from a strange land just because her family told her to do so. But back then, Anna could give only one reason. She said she would never marry a barbarian who was also a pagan. Upon hearing this news, Vladimir agreed to not only convert himself to Greek Orthodoxy, but also convert his entire kingdom. In exchange, Vladimir was to send 6,000 Norse warriors to serve in Basil's Varangian guard. The agreements were made, and Basil's sister was ferried up to the Crimea, where she married the Viking prince Vladimir. Anna went on to become one of the great Tsarinas of the Kievan Rus. She was an imperial by blood, and so was lent many Byzantine architects who traveled up the Dnieper River 
to erect Byzantine-style cathedrals and palaces throughout Vladimir's great kingdom. Vladimir returned to the hill above Kiev, where he smashed all of the idols he erected a decade before. Basil II sailed back to Constantinople with 6,000 Varangian soldiers, all of them battle-hardened, bloodthirsty warriors. They carried battle axes and swords and had heavy armor. Many of them stood well over six feet tall and had long red and blonde beards. The funny thing is, the people of the Kievan Rus were forced to convert to Christianity under Vladimir the Great, but the early Varangians sent to Basil II were allowed to continue their practice of paganism. Basil II was ready to take his 6,000 Varangian soldiers into battle. He was in the middle of his second civil war, and it was not going well. General Bardas Focus had taken all of Anatolia, but now Basil was ready to strike back. Using his superior navy, they sailed up to Trebizond and marched down into Syria. Here they fought the Georgian and Armenian soldiers who defected to Focus. And after a crushing defeat, the Armenians and Georgians retracted their alliance from the rebel general. The civil war came to a climax when the rebel leader, Focus, tried to take a city along the Bosphorus so he could cross over to the European side of the empire. The siege became very close to taking over the city, and Basil II and his younger brother Constantine VIII rode in with a relief army. The two were said to have engaged in battle while relieving the city. At one point in the fighting, General Bardas Focus challenged Basil II to single combat. These two men were already in their middle ages, but Bardas Focus was a much stronger warrior. Basil knew this would not go his way and respectfully declined. So the fighting continued. Before riding into battle, Focus started to show signs of fatigue. He was very tired and even felt nauseous. He was visibly ill and sick and sweating and did not look good at all. Nonetheless, General Focus climbed onto his horse with the help of several other soldiers, put on his helmet, raised his sword, and charged into the center of the enemy lines. As they crashed into the battle line, General Focus fell from his horse. He was dead before he hit the ground. Some say he was poisoned, and others say he had a heart attack. But the end result was a complete breakdown of the rebel forces. The Varangian soldiers charged the battlefield and hacked and chopped the Greek soldiers with their battle axes, leaving thousands dead on the fields. The war ended that day. But there were a few strongholds throughout Anatolia. Bardas' son Leo surrendered the city of Antioch to Basil II. Fun fact. When Bardas Phocas died, the first traitor and rebel, Bardas Scleros, was released from prison. And to everyone's surprise, a huge group of rebels ran to his side to keep the civil war going. However, Bardas Scleros was in his mid-70s and was suffering from cataracts and didn't want to fight anymore. So he negotiated a surrender with Basil II. And under the agreement of Scleros' surrender was the complete amnesty of all his soldiers. Before Bardas Scleros was allowed to leave and retire in peace, he was ordered to meet personally with Basil II. This was the very first time Basil would ever see Scleros with his own eyes. And he was obviously picturing a strong adversary. To his surprise, 
Basil was greeted by a frail old man who couldn't see or stand up straight. This old man made sure to give some well-needed advice to the new emperor. Basil asked the old man, What do I need to do to prevent men like you from rebelling against me in the future? Sclerose answered with, Cut down the governors who become overly proud. Let no generals on campaign have too many resources. Exhaust them with unjust exactions to keep them busy with their own affairs. Admit no woman to the imperial council. Be accessible to no one and share with few your most intimate plans. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.